0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, she's the author of the Christy Miller and Sierra Jensen fiction series. Her books have become the basis for highly rated Hallmark Christmas movies. Robin Jones Gunn is back with two familiar characters in a novel that examines the lives of women in their 30s and some of their challenges. Next, from the ministry called Generous Giving, John Cortinez examines some principles of generosity from a biblical perspective based on a book he's co written. Then, he's been known as the relationship doctor, and David Hawkins offers some insight and instruction regarding the operation of narcissism, which has the potential to cripple and destroy a marriage. Then, he's been known as the relationship doctor, and David Hawkins of the Marriage Recovery Center offers some insight and instruction regarding the operation of narcissism, which has the potential to cripple and destroy a marriage. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, Promise Keepers has relaunched and has a massive stadium event scheduled next summer in Dallas. Its new head, Ken Harrison, visited with me recently to discuss the importance of men seeking to be godly men and walking in God's truth. He's coming up. Plus, some comments from Angela Hunt, the co-author of what is now a series of books highlighting the operation of God. In the latest, The Work of Angels in the Lives of Believers is explored. Finally, author, commentator, and media host Michael Brown with some analysis of a recent LGBT Pride tweet from the president and statements regarding the actions of the administration in placing limits on the furtherance of the LGBT agenda. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House and I'm Bob Crittenden. Robin Jones-Gunn is a well-known and prolific author who has brought back two of her more familiar characters and introduced several others in a new novel called Becoming Us, dealing with matters of identity and more that a group of Christian women are walking through together. Here now from a recent conversation is Robin Jones-Gunn.
1: Our two kids, our son and our daughter, both married and have their own children now, And I'm watching them in this next season of life. And then I'm hearing from readers who have grown up with Christie saying, we want to continue to see these characters role models for us, how to honor God and take the steps into the next season. So it was actually an, an article in 2015 in a magazine that caught my attention when I started thinking about writing about these characters and what might happen when women get together and the interview in the magazine had statistics from a study at Duke University saying that in the last 20 years there are 60% more women that move from their hometown than ever before. 60% more moving leaving that family, leaving that support group, all that's familiar, and then the ideas started to come. That's what I want to do, is write about Emily, who makes this big move with her husband and daughter to Southern California, and she has to start all over again. So a woman in her 30s who's just trying to figure out who she is, becoming us, is is that story of, of her making new friends, figuring out Where things are at in her marriage and with her daughter and just having that chance to do this season of life with a whole new support group. Because culturally, that's where we are. In the Christy and Todd Married Years and Baby Years books, there's three in each of those series there's been this development with these characters figuring out married life, figuring out financial difficulties. They've moved a couple times. And here they are now sort of settling in in their 30s. They are trying to get steady and established. So where Christy adds so much to the book in her season of life is that she has this sense of stability that's just beginning so that when she connects with Emily, she can be this supportive friend and saying the simple things like, I know how you feel. It's going to be okay. God's going to take care of you guys. And just for their husbands to start to connect and to see those friendships develop and for there to be family gatherings and having those times together where their kids get to connect with each other. So just it's been a really fun opportunity to write about these overlapping characters because it it mimics real life in so many ways. I, I keep hearing from the reader, it's as if you were looking over my shoulder into my life. You said it exactly the way I've been feeling. It. Hmm. So there's something unique about that, that when we read a novel and we enter into a fictional world, it's suddenly a mirror that you see Ah, this is what I needed to be reminded of. God is with me. He is taking care of me. He will provide all our needs. And that's that's the truth and the message that Christy is learning and that she can add to the the conversations in the book. One of the main characters in the story, Jenna Lynn, is so fully aware that God's word is alive. And that's really my heartbeat, too. When we get God's word in us, and it becomes part of our thoughts, it transforms us. So, Jenna Lynn has this ability to do hand lettering and to paint and do watercolors. So, she gives to each of the women, each of the haven makers, as they call themselves, because they want to create in their hearts and in their lives a haven so that they are becoming this. Becoming us, becoming mm-hmm. all that God created them to be. And um, that's where Jenna Lynn comes alongside and says, I've prepared for each of you uh, a little card. And it's a verse so that they take it home and they frame it and they think about it. And so that's where the story feels so sweetly authentic that these characters are taking God's word his truth, his principles, and they talk about them. They put them before them to remind them.
0: Robin Jones-Gunn here on The Intersection. Learn more through her website, robingunn.com. Next up, it's the chief operating officer of the organization Generous Giving, John Cortina's, sharing material relative to the book he's co-written entitled True Riches, What Jesus Really Said About Money and Your Heart. From that conversation, this is John Cortinez now.
2: First of all, God is is not so interested in what the amounts look like. You know, whether we have, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a college student racking up the student loans, you know, God's not sitting there wishing that you had more money to give or, or condemning you for what you've done wrong, but rather he's actually inviting you into a closer relationship with him as it comes to your money. And so as we surrender our finances, to Jesus and walk in a relationship with him, he invites us into those steps of generosity. And so it may be a dollar in the offering plate at your church, $5, if that's all you have to start with. And it may be a huge check if you're blessed with resources, but I would say it all begins rooted in that relationship with Jesus Christ. And, uh, I would say, you know, just a little bit further on that, you know, we believe as Christians that God gave his son, uh, And to die for us and invite us into eternal life with God, who is now our Father, Uh, we can call God our Father. And so the foundation of all Christian generosity is the generosity of God, that he's given us eternal life, and he's brought us to life spiritually. And so really when we ground our generosity in that, rather than a rule we have to follow, it changes the perspective.
0: Help us, if you would please, to navigate, and you've alluded to it already, a tension that I can see between being a saver, being someone who is dedicated to building wealth, perhaps saving for retirement. And, you know, it seems like every every week you come across articles about saving for retirement and how much you should be saving for retirement. Then if you've got kids, you're looking at elements with respect to saving for college. So there are all sorts of things to save for. And there seems like there could be some tension between appropriating funds for the purpose of saving, for the future and appropriating funds for giving for walking in generosity. So how do you, how do you reconcile this?
2: Does that make any sense? Oh, it certainly does. That's that is the question and it's something that each of us has to wrestle with in our own unique circumstances. And I don't think there's a formula. And again, I just keep pointing back to this idea because I really believe it that it's our relationship with Jesus, but it's mm-hmm. something we get into significantly In the book, you know, step one in our personal finances is to spend less than we're bringing in. And once we start spending less than we're bringing in, we have extra money and that extra money, just like you said, can do one of two things. We can save it for the future or we can give it away. And I think both of those things in a proper context make total sense. Uh, What I would point to, I think, is that for somebody who is a saver like me, uh, there's this sense of security that we can start getting from money and anxiety about the future And if that's driving us to stockpile, that's not a healthy Christian way to be saving. But actually to pray about the reasonable goals we have in life. Like I know I may be old someday and retire and not be able to work. (laughs) And I know that I have some children and they're going to have educational needs. You know, These are things that God would smile upon, a, a reasonable plan to invest in those things. And so my wife and I still save for retirement like almost everyone does or we'd recommend and Uh, But I would I could say it's about half the rate we used to uh, because we were saving so, so aggressively out of this desire to retire early, out of this desire to win with money and get security out of that. And I'd say our savings today are to say, Lord, we want to partner with you. You've given us resources. We're going to plan for the future, but we're not going to go overboard with it. And we're going to give generously even now, even while we're young. We do have three little kids. We've got a future to, to plan for. So saving and giving both are going to play a significant role in our lives.
0: John Cortina is here on The Intersection. You can find out more through generousgiving.org. Now here's the founder and director of the Marriage Recovery Center, David Hawkins, as he discussed with me principles related to his book, When Loving Him is Hurting You, Hope and Help for Women Dealing with Narcissism and Emotional Abuse. This is David Hawkins
3: this is a spectrum disorder so meaning you can have a little you can have some you can have a lot and of course and obviously if if someone has a lot typically men uh, women have it too but probably in 90% of the situations it's a male disorder or a male problem but if you have NPD narcissistic personality disorder then then you meet a certain number of criteria, you know, to to have that diagnosis. You have the sense of uh, entitlement, a sense of importance, uh, uh, an exaggerated arrogance, uh, a taking advantage of others, lacking empathy. You have all of those things. But Bob, what what happens more often than not is it really isn't. Uh, what what my nine to five schedule isn't filled with NPD. It's filled with NPT, <laughs> narcissistic personality traits. Ah. So so then, yeah, so then you have a little bit of this exaggerated self-importance, a, l- a little bit or some of this uh, arrogance, some lacking empathy, some uh, this self-importance where they disregard other people. But but a little bit, Bob, goes a long, long way. And then I want to kind of splice in another Another word that is out there, and people that, that know about narcissism and emotional will be saying, know this word, and the word is covert. So covert, meaning how many men out there are forgetting, and I put that word in quotes, to think about their, their wife. They're forgetting what is important to her. They're forgetting to ask her how she is, or they DARVO, which stands for defend, attack, reverse victim, and then offend, you know, they flip it back, they become defensive. So you have all this crazy making stuff, Bob, and it all falls under the category of narcissism. But it wouldn't be NPD, but it'd be NPT, narcissistic personality traits. And then that leads to the emotional abuse, which is just incredibly damaging to an individual and then subsequently to a marriage.
0: What are some practical steps that a person can do if if she is feeling that, that well, my husband is so consumed with himself, he's mm-hmm. engaging in these activities, what's a woman to do?
3: She has got to find a safe place, first of all, a safe person who will listen to her, who will validate her concerns. I'm telling you this, this is sounds like hyperbole, Bob, but Every day, I had it happen this morning, a woman literally started crying when I just said the words to her, I believe you. That's all I said. I said, I believe you. And she, she started stuttering and she started crying. You you believe me? I believe you. She says, nobody believes me. Nobody, I mean, my husband talks me out of my feelings. My pastor says, look, you've just got to love him better. Just You've just got to submit. You've got to just do these things. And... I said, I believe you. I believe you. I I believe your story. So she needs to be believed. She needs to find a safe place to talk about what is happening. She finds that safe place, which is not going to be hard, not going to be easy to find. She finds that safe place, and then she talks out what's really happening. Maybe she journals it out and brings it in to this friend, this therapist, Therapists, by the way, we don't do that good of a job either. So I'm just I'm calling everybody out. We don't, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I'm gonna call I'm calling you out, Bob. Great. <laughs> well, no, we're, seriously, us therapists, we're not doing a good job. We want to call it a communications problem. Okay, she finds a safe place. She tells her story. They validate her concerns, and then we can begin. When they come to me, we validate their concerns, we look at them, we define what's really going on. So if it's abuse, it's abuse. We use the A word, it's abuse, it's emotional abuse. It's We use the N word, there's narcissism going on here. And then we develop a game plan that's going to involve an intervention.
0: David Hawkins, who has been known as the Relationship Doctor. Here on The Intersection, you can find out more about the Marriage Recovery Center by going to the website, marriagerecoverycenter.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through info. There's a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. It's available through the Media Center as well. Two blogs are accessible through the Meeting House homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There is also a link to video content. Conversations are also available through the Faith Radio app, as well as a variety of other apps. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. Ken Harrison is president and chairman of the board for Promise Keepers. He shared with me about the relaunch of the organization a 2020 stadium event, and his book, Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man. This is Ken Harrison now.
4: We need to give men permission to be men again. At first, I think we've gotten so bad that for the younger generation, we have to explain to them what a man is. Uh, There was a, I forget the guy's name, in in the Netherlands in World War II when the Nazis came in and and were persecuting the Jews, and the Christians got together and said, well, what should we do? If we help them, we could die And they asked their Christian leader, what should we do? And his answer was, I can't tell you what you should do, but I can tell you who you are. And when you know who you are, you know what you need to do. And that's the state of Christian men today, is we need to re-explain what is a man, what is expected of us from God's Word. It says in 2 Corinthians, act like a man. What is that? What does that mean? And that's what I go into in the book in quite some detail, that the hallmark of someone who's in love with Jesus Christ is humility. And how that's expressed in a man is through courage and generosity. Courage is an expression of humility and love of Jesus, because when you don't see yourself as the most important person in the room, you're going to stand up for the bullied. You're going to stand up for what's right. You're going to witness to people about your faith, even though you might get persecuted. And generosity is generosity of spirit. It's not just giving money well and tipping well. Um, hint, hint for some of the people listening here. Um, When you're praying over your meal and you're having a Christian conversation, that waitress or waiter heard you tip them well and show them that Christians are generous. But it's also generosity of spirit. It's praying for people. It's pouring ourselves out to the Lord for for other people who can't do anything for us. Um, So we need to remind men of what it looks like to be a man. We're supposed to lay down our rights to ourselves for those in our charge, our wives, our kids, etc.,
0: well, Ken Harrison is joining us today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio. He is the president and chairman of Promise Keepers and also the author of the book, Rise of the Servant Kings, what the Bible says about being a man. And this is a very intriguing title. What inspired that?
4: Um, well, to be honest, no one's asked me that question before. It was uh, <laughs> a dear friend of mine, Dr. Jody Dillo, wrote a book um, called the Reign of the Future, Servant Kings, where he goes into a 1,200-page, extremely highly um, researched talk about the judgment of the Christians uh, at the Judgment Age. And I, as I was reading, as I was writing this book, I said to Jody, hey, do you mind if I uh, rip off part of your title? He said, oh, absolutely. So Servant Kings comes from the idea that each man is called to be a king, which means to be accountable in his sphere, which I sort of mentioned earlier. But um Man, if you're a single man, you're here to respect, protect women, the poor, the oppressed. Um, uh, Isaiah 1 really calls out men. It says um, that God's looking for men who will stand up for justice, care for the poor and the oppressed, and be jealous for his name. If you're a married man, you're responsible and accountable to the spiritual state of your wife and your kids. And that doesn't mean you're at fault. It doesn't mean you're to blame. But it means, you know, if things aren't going well in your marriage, the first thing you do is ask yourself, why is it not going well, and what do I have to do with it, and what do I have to change, not what do they have to change? It's, part, it's understanding that we as men have outsourced the spiritual education um, and all the education of our kids to schools, to churches, which may or may not be teaching God's Word. We're responsible and accountable to know God's Word and teach that
0: to our kids and our wives. And you speak of Christian men being deceived. In what areas do you believe that Christian men have been deceived?
4: Yeah, boy, there's a lot to that. Let me try to give you a quick answer. (laughs) Um, The first part is, you know, I was raised in the church in a very solid uh, background, and I really knew scripture. But what I I found was that, especially in the evangelical church, nobody ever talks about Satan, and yet the New Testament is full of dire warnings about him. And so you you wonder, well, who is Satan, and what does he want? Why does he do what he does? And so I really wanted to write a chapter on that to explain. Because part of what we said is, if you need to know your identity as a man, um, the second thing is that God's called us to be warriors in his, in his army. Or warriors against what? Who's our enemy? And our enemy is Satan, and we're trying to rescue people who are victims of his lies. His lies uh, in our day right now have really come to fruition over decades, maybe centuries of laying groundwork to destroy the image of God in our eyes. So God's image, he created male and female um, in his image. So therefore, a fully masculine man and a fully feminine woman coming together as one in marriage, and by the way, God defines marriage, not the United States government, um, they are a reflection of the image of God. If Satan can destroy our perception of masculinity, then he destroys our perception of who God is, and we see that, don't we?
0: Ken Harrison here on The Intersection. The website for Promise Keepers is promisekeepers.org. Next up, it's Angela Hunt, co-author, along with Bill Myers, of the book, When God Happens, Angels, Miracles, and Heavenly Encounters. In our recent conversation, she talked about the mechanics of compiling stories of God at work and discussed specific stories relative to the operation of angels. From that conversation, this is Angela Hunt.
5: Sometimes we do see them. No. I have personally never seen an angel, but Bill has, and he has a story in the book, um, but how do we know that the Bible says sometimes we entertain angels unaware? Right. So perhaps we have had an angel encounter and not even been aware of it. Um, Abraham, the Bible says he met with three men, and one of them was a theophany because Abraham called him Lord. And uh, so we believe that was probably the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who came and told him the news about Sarah going to have a son. And um, there are just so many times. But, you know, they always, one thing we really want to stress in this book is that angels are not meant to be worshipped, to be prayed to, um, because they are servants of God and they are intended to serve us and god because there are some angels the seraphim and the cherubim whose sole purpose is to sit around and glorify god the father so um angels have specific tasks they are created beings just like humans are um and they are as immortal as humans are but they never sinned um well a third of them did Um, The Bible tells us that one-third of the created angels, before the world was created, chose to follow Lucifer instead of staying in obedience to God. But at that point, we believe God sealed them. And so the good angels, the holy angels, remained servants of God, and the other ones went off to serve the devil. Um, So anyway... They are amazing creatures, but we should not worship them or idealize them in any way.
0: What sort of impact did, you know, reading over these stories and talking with these people, what sort of impact did it have on you and on Bill?
5: Well, my first reaction to reading some of these stories was, yay God! I mean, the (laughs) fact that he's so miraculous and so caring there's a story in there about this one woman and this may sound trivial but it meant a great deal to her she was she and her husband had booked um a trip to the holy land and they were having lunch at this little restaurant or something and she fell and sprained her ankle quite severely and um she said she was sitting there worrying about their upcoming trip to israel because that will require a lot of walking and she didn't know if she could do it and suddenly this young black man she'd never seen before he came up to her and he said your ankle will be fine it will take 10 days to heal and they were supposed to leave for israel on like day 11 and um so she wasn't quite sure, did she trust this man, did she cancel her trip? And you know, you only have so many days to cancel your trip. So she decided to trust him. She did not cancel her trip. And what do you know, on day 11, she got up, put her weight on her foot, and it was absolutely fine. So they were able to go on their trip and and enjoy the promised land. So, you know, things like that are just so reassuring that God cares about even the small things in our lives and sends his angels to minister to us.
0: What would you and Bill desire for people to take away from this particular book or this series?
5: I think the main thing is, is that God is. Yeah. And the second thing would be that God cares. And the third thing is that God loves. There's a story in there uh, by a lady named Peggy. And she was not saved at the time, and she was in the grocery store, and she bought a book about runes, um, those stones you can throw, and they tell the future, et cetera. It's very occultic. But she was lost, and so she bought those, and she was setting up one afternoon. She was going to do the rune experiment, and somebody knocked at her door, and she answered it. And it was this woman whom she'd never seen before and who came in and talked to her. And I forget the gist of the conversation, but it was enough to make Peggy realize that God existed and that he loved her. And so she said goodbye to the woman and she closed the door. And she was so preoccupied with thoughts of God that at that moment, she began her movement toward him.
0: Angela Hunt here on The Intersection. The website address for the series is whengodhappens.com. Author, commentator, and media host Michael Brown talked with me recently. In light of a recent tweet by President Trump about LGBT Pride Month, he discussed some of the actions of the Trump administration that run counter to the gay agenda. He's the author of a forthcoming book entitled Jezebel's War on America. From that conversation, this is Michael Brown now.
6: Number one, gay activists are not impressed with his tweet.
0: Right, right. It didn't they didn't make him happy either.
6: <laughs> they're bashing him. They're, they're saying, listen, uh, one tweet doesn't undo all the damage you've done. He's been called the most anti-LGBTQ president in our history. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, in a sense, is consistent with who he's been in that on a personal level, he was really glad to get votes from gay community. He held up a gay flag at one rally appreciating, you know, the, the support of of uh gays for Trump. And then he had his friend, uh, one of the co founders of PayPal, openly gay, had him speak at the Republican National Convention as an openly gay man. And obviously he's a New York Liberal most of his life. He must have worked with, with gays for years and years. He said he had no problem with Bruce Caitlin Jenner using uh, the, the female restroom at Trump Tower, if that's what Jenner wanted to do. So in a sense, he's always been, hey, I like LGBT people, and I'm all for them, etc., and, and I work together, we're, we, we're great, but he's obviously very sensitive to concerns of conservative Christians Anything that comes against our religious liberties, anything that imposes something on us uh, because of a gay agenda that now uh, restricts our rights and liberties. So he, he's fought against, spoken against the Equality Act. This administration, the so-called Equality Act. Uh, these, he's pushed back against transgender serving in the military, etc. Various things like this. He's pushed back about a boy who identifies as a girl being able to use a, a girl's bathroom in an elementary school different policies his administration has pushed back against. So uh, this, again, to me, is consistent with who he is. If you think about his pro-life policy, he has been in many ways the most aggressive pro-life president we've had. And yet his view remains the same, that he thinks there should be exclusions for for rape, incest, or for the life of the mother. So that was his view during the campaign. It remains his view. So in, in that sense, he is who he is. And we have to recognize it and not put too much trust in him uh, or trust more than we should. We recognize who we're dealing with. We appreciate the good he does. But we don't put all of our eggs in this basket. And and that leads to, Bob, the the subject of my new book coming out, Jezebel's War with America. And let me refer all of your listeners to JezebelsWarWithAmerica.com. The publisher, it looks like they've gone crazy. They're giving over $50 of free ebooks and resources when you pre order this book. I, w- I was shocked by what they said they wanted to offer. So, Jezebel's War with Here, Here's the reason I bring the book up. In the book, I connect the various dots of some of the most horrific things happening in our society today, how they all go back to a similar spiritual root that we can refer to as the spirit of Jezebel. And, and who is it that in the Bible has the confrontation with this woman Jezebel? It's King Jehu. And, and Jehu is described as, as reckless, or he's a maniac, or he's a madman, all the same ways that President Trump is described. In fact, I have headlines describing him, the very words that Jehu is described in. He's one of these alpha male characters, a guy who's zealous, for a good cause, but there's a lot of collateral damage because he's the proverbial bull in the China shop. So you have someone like that, that is going to bring up a conflict with the radical feminist Jezebel. So I see all this stuff happening through the Trump presidency. There has been the rise of the, the Jezebel spirit, by which I mean the same demonic forces that operated through Jezebel operating Through different forces and people today. So, with it, you've got radical feminism. With it, you've got the extreme baby killing spirit. With it, you've got the seduction of porn. With it, you've got the war on gender. With it, you've got the emasculating of men. With it, you've got the silencing of the prophets. With it, you've got the rise of witchcraft. And you look around in America, and you check off all the boxes, and then when Trump comes in, you've got the Madonnas of the world saying they want to blow up the White House, and it's all coming up together. And as followers of Jesus, while we're involved on the social issues... And while we pray for the president, et cetera, we need to look and recognize there's a bigger spiritual war going on. These are not just different things happening. This is a spiritual battle that we're in. And the only way we can turn the tide is by taking it on spiritually.
0: Michael Brown here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website askdrbrown.org. I am closing out this edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. The Intersection is also available in the Media Center. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content, including recently added content from the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Anaheim, California. Conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found on the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit faithradio.org or meetinghouseonline.info. At the Meeting House homepage, you'll find out about other apps through which you can access Meeting House content. Again, the website address meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org to access the Meeting House homepage. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.